Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, December 27th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The latest batch of Twitter files suggests Twitter rigged the COVID debate. An unprecedented U.S. storm kills at least 28. The United Nations says 180 Rohingya are presumed to have drowned. Putin reiterates his readiness to negotiate. China holds drills around Taiwan. Migrants are dropped off at U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris's home. South Korea fires warning shots after northern drones enter its airspace. Maoist leader Prachanda becomes Nepal's new prime minister. And a rescue mission for trapped miners continues in China. Our top story, a new batch of Twitter files, claims that Twitter rigged the COVID debate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, Daily Mail, MSN, and the Twitter accounts of David Zweig and Matt Tybee. According to a new batch of so-called Twitter files published on Monday by journalist David Zweig, the Biden administration pressured Twitter into banning users for COVID stances that didn't align with those of the administration. From ordinary users to doctors and experts, Twitter allegedly suppressed, discredited, and banned people for questioning vaccine efficacy or tweeting COVID-related information it deemed misleading, even in cases when CDC data or peer-reviewed studies were provided. Alex Berenson was a notable target that the White House urged Twitter to ban for being an alleged anti-vaxxer. While most of the focus was on pressure from the Biden administration, according to Zweig, The Trump administration also exerted pressure on Twitter to suppress or elevate information early on in the pandemic, reportedly being particularly concerned about panic buying. This comes as journalist Matt Tybee released a separate batch of Twitter files on Christmas Eve showing what he called the FBI acting as doorman to a vast program of social media surveillance and censorship, encompassing agencies across the federal government. According to Tybee, the FBI inundated the platform with requests to moderate content and went to extreme lengths to validate theories of foreign influence. Per the release, the FBI wasn't the only agency allegedly attempting to influence Twitter, with the State Department, CIA, and Pentagon among those apparently actively coordinating with Twitter and all major social media platforms. The FBI maintained that it, along with other intelligence agencies, is committed to serving and protecting the American people and that it is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists and others are feeding the American public misinformation. Those were the facts of that story, and during this podcast, we extract the spins. And for this story, the right narrative is the first one coming from Newsweek. The U.S. government, intelligence community, and big tech clearly colluded behind closed doors to stifle free speech under the pretense of stopping misinformation. Now that the mask is off, The FBI and its co-conspirators respond by gaslighting any who dare question the Ministry of Truth. And the left narrative comes from CNN. Elon Musk seems to be addicted to creating controversy and misleading the public. To deflect from his botched management of Twitter, he's now trying to discredit America's intelligence agencies and fabricate nefarious ties between the FBI and social media platforms that don't exist. This story has also produced a cynical narrative coming from New York Magazine. Though aspects of the Twitter files have been productive in terms of transparency, Elon Musk is guilty of the same things he has accused companies and journalists of. The Twitter files are not meant to advance the interests of the public, but the interests of the GOP and right-wing actors, caveat emptor. 
Um, I'm not here to tell anyone what to think. We just read the narratives. We read the facts. You can make your own determinations from those. But I think that the service that we're providing here at Improve the News is especially useful, Eric, in cases like this where something that seems like it can't be true, actually it appears like there's a lot of facts that say that it is true. I've decided to go back to MySpace. Good idea. What was the guy's name that was everybody's friend? Uh, I can't remember, but I know what you're talking about. Some friend. Yeah. Yeah. Love that guy. He was my best friend at one point. I know. I know. He used to say great things about you. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Disturbing weather-related news coming from the United States as unprecedented winter storms kill at least 28. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, PBS NewsHour, CNN, USA Today, Newsweek, and Washington Post. Beginning on Thursday, a, quote, once-in-a-generation winter storm swept across the U.S., killing at least 28 people and leaving thousands without power and facing frigid, life-threatening temperatures. Buffalo, New York, ground to a halt with hurricane-force winds and blowing snow that caused whiteout conditions. New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced that nearly every emergency vehicle in the city was stranded on Saturday as the National Weather Service in Buffalo reported 43 inches of snow at the Niagara International Airport. At least 25 of the deceased died in Erie County, New York, which includes the city of Buffalo. Between Monday and Tuesday, the area is expected to see another 8 to 12 inches of snow. Nearly 60% of the country has been placed under a winter storm advisory or warning. According to FlightAware, a flight tracking site, the unprecedented weather system has wreaked havoc on domestic and international travel, forcing the cancellation of more than 1,700 flights as of Sunday morning. Many states also faced significant power outages from the below-freezing temps and blizzard-like conditions on Christmas Day. The storm, the storm described as a major and anomalous storm by the National Weather Service, put more than 175,000 households in the dark and cold across Maine, New York, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Vermont, and Virginia. Facing a storm for the ages, New York Governor Hochul has spoken with Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff, and has been told that President Biden is prepared to sign a disaster declaration for the state within 24 hours of their submission. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Utility Dive brings us an establishment-critical narrative. The North American Electric Reliability Corporation warned that the U.S. power grid could face widespread and unprecedented risks this winter. While there are sufficient energy resources under normal winter conditions, large swaths of the country have been left with power systems not built for extreme cold scenarios. A strong and cohesive collaboration between industry and government will be needed to bring the regions out of the dark ages, literally. And PowerTechnology.com gives us the pro-establishment narrative. The U.S. power grid is a massive system that is complex and a growing network requiring significant maintenance. The increase in extreme weather events due to climate change has tested the system, in some cases beyond its capacity. Biden has been forward-leaning on the challenges, however, signing a $1 trillion infrastructure bill to help modernize the U.S. grid and allow for the faster restart of service when facing disaster. The thing about a huge and widespread storm like this is there's a lot of places 
that aren't used to having cold temperatures that are getting super cold. I mean, someone in Minnesota or Maine or things like that, they're they're usually prepared for this sort of thing. It might just be a little colder than usual, but some places just aren't used to it at all. I agree. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Let's keep it moving. The UN reports that 180 Rohingya are presumed drowned. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, ABC News, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and The Guardian. On Sunday, the United Nations expressed fears that a boat carrying about 180 Rohingya who fled camps in Bangladesh has sunk with no survivors after it went missing in the Andaman Sea, with relatives of those on board having lost contact with them. As around 200 people are already presumed dead or missing, this sinking would make 2022 the third worst year for dead and missing Rohingyas at sea in nearly a decade, after 2013 and 2014, when 900 and 700 people died or went missing, respectively. This comes as nearly one million Muslim-majority Rohingya from Myanmar are reportedly living in crowded facilities in Bangladesh, and the number of refugees trying to flee deteriorating conditions in camps has returned to pre-pandemic levels. On Monday, at least 185 Rohingya refugees arrived in the northern Indonesia province of Etch after weeks at sea and were taken to the village hall to receive help and be identified by immigration officials and police. This was the second boat carrying Rohingyas to have landed in Etch in the past two days, following a group of at least 57 men who spent a month adrift at sea, as the International Organization for Migration has raised alarms about boats deprived of food and water heading for Malaysia and Indonesia. The United Nations Refugee Agency's Asia-Pacific Director, Indrika Ratwi, on Friday urged countries in Southeast Asia to help save lives, echoing a call made on Thursday by UN Special Rapporteur on Myanmar, Tom Andrews. Some 2,000 Rohingya are estimated to have taken the risky sea journey this year alone. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. This one has generated two spins, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Al Jazeera. The Rohingya people have desperately risked their lives crossing the ocean for years, trying to find a safe place to live after suffering human rights abuses in Myanmar. This crisis has exposed structural flaws in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and its rules made it possible for Myanmar to prevent regional powers from investigating the scale of human rights abuses and taking action to halt them. And DW brings us an establishment-critical narrative. It's hypocritical to solely criticize ASEAN when Western democracies have done nothing to help the Rohingya, even when the International Court of Justice has long called for measures to protect those persecuted. While this is likely to be a consequence of fears that Myanmar would strengthen ties with Beijing if pressed, not acting to preserve the universal validity of human rights can only damage the West's reputation. The plight of the Rohingya at sea is the world's responsibility. Continuing our coverage of the tragedy in Ukraine with a look at day 306 as Putin reiterates readiness for Ukraine negotiations. And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, Politico, Ukraine Forum, and TASS. Echoing comments made last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin said he is ready to hold negotiations to bring an end to the war in Ukraine. He alleged it was his opponents that have in fact refused to take the issue seriously. In an interview with Russia's state broadcaster Rossiya One that aired on Sunday, Putin said, quote, We are ready to negotiate with everyone involved about acceptable solutions. But that is up to them. We are not the ones refusing to negotiate. They are. Despite his remarks, 
U.S. and Ukrainian officials claimed Putin's comments were insincere and that he was attempting to buy time amid battlefield failures. On Twitter, Mikhailo Podolyak, an advisor to the Ukrainian president, said, Russia doesn't want negotiations, but tries to avoid responsibility. Meanwhile, on Monday, Russia's defense ministry said it shot down a drone that targeted the Engels airfield deep within its borders, roughly 370 miles or 600 kilometers northeast of Ukraine. It said three service members were killed after the downed drone caused a large explosion and fire. It was the second time the airfield was attacked this month, after an earlier attack on December 5th. In Russian attacks over the past day, strikes and shelling were recorded in the regions of Sumy, Donetsk, Kherson, Kharkiv, and Zaporizhia. Ukrainian officials said two civilians were injured in Donetsk, while one person was injured in each of Kharkiv and Kherson. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the New York Post. Despite Putin's comments, Russia is being disingenuous about claims of wanting negotiations. These are ploys to buy time amid failures on the battlefield. And TASS brings us a pro-Russian narrative. Russia has repeatedly said it's open to negotiate and bring the war to an end. It's Ukraine and their backers in the West that are refusing to participate in this process. And we've got our first statistics-based nerd narrative of the show. This one says there's a 1% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukraine conflict before 2023. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Kind of running out of time on that nerd narrative here. Yes. There's a 1% chance that you and me are going to get together before, <laughs> before 2023 at this point. Maybe less. Yeah. China holds drills around Taiwan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Guardian, Axios, The Global Times, and CNN. On Sunday, China's Eastern Theater Command confirmed that it conducted joint combat alert patrols and joint fire strike exercises in the sea and airspace around Taiwan in what it deemed a resolute response to alleged U.S.-Taiwan collusion and provocation. On Monday, Taipei reported that 71 Chinese aircraft, including fighter jets and drones, entered its Air Defense Identification Zone, or ADIS, between 6 a.m. Sunday and 6 a.m. Monday, allegedly the largest incursion to date. The Taiwanese Defense Ministry said in a statement that 47 Chinese planes were detected crossing the median line of the Taiwan Strait, adding that Beijing also deployed seven ships to areas around the island. The incursions, which followed naval exercises by a Chinese aircraft carrier group close to Japan, were reportedly made by 42 fighter jets, two maritime patrol aircraft, an early warning aircraft, and two military drones. This comes as U.S. President Joe Biden signed the U.S. National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023 on Friday, which promises to provide Taiwan with $10 billion in military aid and $2 billion in military loans within five years marking the first time it will finance weapons for the island. Tensions between China and the U.S. over the self-ruled island that Beijing views as part of its national territory have ramped up this year, especially following a visit to Taiwan by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in August. Thank you, Scott. As we take a look at the spins that have been generated from this story, anti-China narrative is the first one coming from CNN. Despite having never controlled Taiwan, these latest drills show that Beijing is resolute in resorting to aggressive military pressure tactics to resolve differences and annex the self-ruled democratic country. Under such circumstances, Taiwan and the U.S. must strengthen their cooperation 
to deter Chinese aggression and ensure a free, open, peaceful, and stable Indo-Pacific region. And the pro-China narrative comes from Global Times. This latest exercise is a direct result of U.S. provocation as Washington continues to escalate its collusion with Taiwan in its latest defense act. Beijing had to demonstrate it will take any necessary measures to protect its national sovereignty and territorial integrity. If Washington doesn't want to trigger a military confrontation, it should respect the One China principle and refrain from undermining peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And this story has also generated a nerd narrative. It says there's a 10% chance that China will launch a full-scale invasion of Taiwan by 2025. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. We talk a lot about the geopolitical effects of these different military posturing things. What about the poor troops on both sides? All these extra drills, like every day we're doing <laughs> drills over other countries? Jeez. Yeah, that can't Sir, be fun. These are hardworking guys. Let's give yeah, them a break. Exactly. Turning our attention back to the United States as migrants have been dropped off at Vice President Kamala Harris's home. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, CNBC, and Newsweek. Three buses reportedly carrying around 110 to 130 migrants from Texas were dropped off in front of U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris's residence in Washington, D.C. on Christmas Eve. Authorities from Texas haven't confirmed their involvement. But the bus drop-off is similar to the previous actions by border state governors protesting sanctuary cities and calling attention to the Biden administration's immigration policies as they receive a daily influx of asylum seekers. The Central and South American migrants, dropped off in below-freezing temperatures, were greeted by the Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network and taken to a local church, where they were given warm food and clothes. Local NGOs had expected the bus's arrival. But a day later, most of the arriving migrants are headed to other destinations and expect to remain in Washington only briefly. According to Texas Governor Greg Abbott, as of last week, his office has sent more than 15,000 migrants since April to Washington, Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia. Thanks for that report, Eric. We have a Democratic narrative from The Guardian. While Abbott has yet to confirm his responsibility for this latest stunt, there's no question that he's behind it. Once again, the governor is employing migrants as political tools to fuel his agenda. Abandoning children and families on the side of the road in below freezing temperatures on Christmas Eve is reckless. A Republican narrative is coming from Newsweek. For far too long, woke hypocritical politicians in blue states have declared their cities sanctuaries and avoided the brunt of the border crisis as their fellow border states struggle. It's about time that they put their actions where their mouths are and start sharing the load. South Korea fires shots after invading North drones. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, the Korea Jungong Daily, the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Axios, and Fox News. South Korea's military deployed fighter jets, attack helicopters, and fired warning shots on Monday after it reportedly detected five North Korean drones crossing into its airspace in the morning, four of which flew around Gangwa Island and one over Seoul's northern airspace. The drones were allegedly similar to unmanned aerial vehicles spotted in 2014, which first prompted concerns of espionage from the north. They reportedly flew over the country for around seven hours, with attack helicopters firing about 100 shots but failing to shoot them down. There were no immediate reports of civilian casualties or damage in South Korea. 
but defense officials stated that a KA-1 light attack plane crashed during takeoff, stressing that both of its two pilots ejected safely. This is the first time that alleged North Korean drones have been caught entering the South's airspace since 2017, marking another escalation in the already strained relations. It comes as the North fired two short-range ballistic missiles on Friday following a U.S.-South Korea joint air drill some days earlier. A North Korean drone with a camera was found in 2017 on a mountain in South Korea close to the border, leading Seoul to suggest it was being used as part of a spying mission carried out by Pyongyang. North Korea has conducted an unprecedented number of missile tests in 2022 and claimed in recent weeks to have carried out major tests to obtain its first spy satellite and a more mobile intercontinental ballistic missile capable of reaching the U.S. mainland. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Several spins have emerged, and the Republican narrative is the first one coming from Red State. You can't blame Kim Jong-un for flexing North Korea's military muscle when Biden is recklessly saber-rattling with Taiwan and China. How does he know the U.S. won't also team up with South Korea for an invasion of the North? Trump's relationship with and policies towards North Korea maintained stability in the Korean Peninsula. And MSNBC brings us a Democratic narrative. Kim Jong-un's geopolitical actions have been erratic and his missile launches are destabilizing the peninsula. Instead of provoking a confrontation, the leader should take the Biden administration up on its offer to meet without preconditions and settle any grievances peacefully. Biden is showing strength and prudence in the region. And this story has generated our first libertarian narrative. And this one's coming from anti-war. The U.S. has threatened to nuke North Korea, which has the right to defend itself. The U.S. should stop playing global cop and prioritize solving its domestic problems. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says, There's a 15% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a single sovereign state by the year 2045. Our next story is coming from Nepal, as a Maoist leader emerges as the new prime minister. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Al Jazeera, Reuters, DW, and Kathmandu Post. Former Maoist guerrilla leader Pushpa Kamal Dahal, better known as his nom de guerre Prashanta, was sworn in as Prime Minister of Nepal on Monday. His Communist Party of Nepal, Maoist Center, finished third in the November elections, which resulted in a hung parliament. The announcement came hours after Prashanga walked out of the Nepali Congress Party's Sher Bahadur Duba-led ruling alliance and joined a coalition with the opposition communist unified Marxist-Leninist UML party and five other smaller groups. Though Nepali Congress remains the largest party in the 275-member parliament with 89 seats, it has failed to reach the 138 majority threshold needed to form the new government, and its leader Duba refused to back Prashanga, whose party won 32 seats. According to local media, the coalition has agreed that Prashanga will serve for the first half of the five-year term, stepping down in 2025 to make way for the UML, which controls 78 seats to take over the office. Prashanga led the Maoist insurgency from 1996 to 2006, which claimed the lives of over 17,000 people and led to the abolition of the country's 239-year-old monarchy in 2008. He served as prime minister for two year-long terms from 2008 to 2009 and 2016 to 2017. Pakistan's Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, 
the spokesman for the Chinese embassy, and U.S. Ambassador Dean R. Thompson congratulated Prachanga on being appointed as the 44th Prime Minister of Nepal, with the latter praising the country's democratic traditions. All right, here's an anti-China narrative from Swaraja magazine. This is clearly the result of Chinese meddling. Beijing has finally put into practice its years-old plan to push all of Nepal's communist parties together to form the next government. This move has kept the more India-friendly Nepali Congress out of power and is likely to favor Chinese geopolitical interests. And Global Times gives us a pro-China narrative. Nepal's relations with either neighbor won't be affected by this election. As major parties have all been clear that Kathmandu must maintain good relationships with both the PRC and India. Nevertheless, friendship with Beijing means tangible benefits to Nepalis, including high-quality cooperation in investment, infrastructure, and other areas. We remain in China for our final story as the rescue efforts continue for 18 trapped miners. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, China Daily, Global Times, and Al Jazeera. Rescue efforts to free 18 trapped workers continued Sunday after a mine collapsed on Saturday in China's Yining County, approximately 60 miles from the shared border with Kazakhstan, with 40 people working inside. Following the collapse, officials in the Xinjiang region deployed over 300 rescue workers, around 80 rescue vehicles, and over 400 pieces of equipment, saving 22 people. Rescuers have also completed an examination of roadway blockage, wind flow, and gas conditions of the collapsed area. Liu Wei, security director of the Xinjiang non-ferrous metal industry, said, At present, the location of the trapped workers has been determined and ventilation has been ensured. The Ministry of Emergency Management sent a work group to the region to oversee the rescue operation. The group, along with Wei, have reported that the conditions for rescue are difficult, with Wei saying, The rocks around the spot affected by the accident are not stable. The cause of the mine collapse is still unknown. China has held its position as the world's top producer of gold for the last 10 years. While mining conditions have improved over the years, accidents still occur frequently, especially in rural areas with rudimentary systems. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. And this final story has generated three different spins. The anti-China narrative is the first one coming from the China Labor Bulletin. While workplace safety has improved over the years, it's still a huge concern in China. Lax and inadequate regulations leave employers free to ignore their obligations, resulting in thousands of injuries and fatalities each year. With many companies putting profit before safety, accidents occur in a broad range of industries, from construction to delivery drivers to mining. This will only continue as China rushes to maintain its top producer status. And a pro-China narrative comes from Bloomberg. China has cracked down significantly on unsafe mining practices, but some companies have, by their own accord, slipped through the cracks. Meanwhile, Beijing's commitment to workplace safety is not without consequences, as tighter oversight has been linked to a decline in production, which not only has domestic repercussions, but also global ones. Beijing, faced with having to balance safety with economic security, is right to proceed cautiously. And our final narrative is a cynical one, coming from MiningTechnology.com. Europe has become an energy slave to Russia, and now the West is vulnerable to becoming a slave to China because of its mineral resources. Beijing dominates the global market with its mining output, and in 2020, produced 85% of the world's rare earth refined products. The U.S. has fallen behind and must tread carefully. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, December 27th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.